Hello and welcome back to the Dear Self with Love podcast. My name is Jenna Knapp and I am coming back to share the final episode in our mini-series of A Peek into the Portal with you today where we are going to explore and learn more about hypnosis. Hypnosis is definitely present in all of the offerings that are for sale inside of the archival sale, which ends today, ends tonight. Tonight is the last possible chance that you can ever scoop up the Mental Wealth Method self-study, the subliminal workshop, the On Purpose album, and the Spread the Wealth bundle before they go to the vault forever and get locked up to create more energetic space, more digital space for my next chapter. Uh, I invite you to check it out, to take action if it's something you've been thinking about for the past 10 days, when you've been tuning into these episodes, explore it and grab it before it's gone. Um, In celebration of closing out this chapter, uh, I have been doing a mini-series for the past few episodes sharing sort of the foundation of understanding your mind and your subconscious rules that it loves to live by and how you can apply them to your own life. Um, The last episode, we tapped into the concept of anchoring. And for this final one, I really wanted to share more about hypnosis with y'all because that technique, that modality is a game changer and is an incredible resource to have in your own life to learn how to make your own hypnosis tracks for yourself, uh, for your loved ones, with your loved ones in collaboration, uh, to know how to do self-hypnosis, to know how to uh, just like be aware of the power of language because hypnosis is not as woo-woo as it's made out to be. And that's what I break down for you. Um, I'm sharing a clip from the audio learning that is inside of the Mental Wealth Method self-study portal. Uh, It's a long audio learning. It's like 100, well, not 100 minutes. Well, an hour and 40 minutes. So um, yeah, exactly, 100 minutes. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, and I wish I could share it all with you, but um, I I narrowed it down. Uh, This is a longer one, but I narrowed it down so that I can share with you uh, what is hypnosis, what hypnosis is not, so that you can get a real clear picture and kind of do some of the demystifying around any preconceived um, uh, impressions you might have around it. A lot of people have impressions of like stage hypnosis and um, how sometimes it can be used for harm, but it is such an incredible tool that can be used for the goodest good. Um, And it's a tool that I use in my life uh, when I'm doing really good daily, um, if not daily, weekly, where I sink in and put on a track. And it's an incredible way to carve out space and time for my body to just be and do nothing but listen and go into a deep, relaxed state. My nervous system loves to sink into hypnosis, um, but it also is... uh, a very amazing way to work directly with my subconscious mind to have just like the most loving, positive affirmations fed to that deep inner layer. And uh, it's a lot of fun too because the way you get there is through imagining different scenes and really building up sensory 
details and language in your mind and being able to transport yourself. So all in all, it's become one of my favorite uh, tools for self-care that I've ever had. And now that I've had it for close to five years since learning about it and have been creating my own for the past four, um, it just is completely transformational in the sense that you can feel like you're not really doing anything and then you get all of the impacts of it uh, that trickle into your life and almost feel like they snuck up on you because it was happening on a subconscious level. So we're going to dive into that today. Like I said, you're going to learn what hypnosis is, what it is not, and I share some of the early history with you. The early history goes all the way back to the 1700s, and I stop it at 1933. So I take you through a very good chunk of time in the history, and just so that you can kind of hear more about where it comes from, because it's so fascinating to hear the origin story behind it and to see where some of the pioneers of, uh, you know, what the world we live in today of that's like really exciting the way we're looking at neuroplasticity and mindset and the subconscious mind like some of these people were the pioneers that paved the way for us to think about things differently one of my favorites and what I mentioned in the Substack article is uh, Clark Hall's experiment where he's working with uh, people who are imagining a bowl of fruit and eating a bowl of fruit and you'll have to listen in to know more about what that experiment was but He's the one that taught us, he's the one that discovered in 1933 that uh, the, the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between real and imagined. And if you take anything from this podcast, if you take anything from this mini-series that we've been doing, um, I want you to know that your imagination muscle, your going out into the future and imagining how you would like things to go, you going into your mind and sort of role-playing a difficult situation and seeing how you would handle yourself and kind of almost even correcting things that you think might go a certain way and, and witnessing yourself in your mind do it differently, your subconscious mind will think that it's real and it will collect it as belief as, uh, oh, like we've done this before, we can do it again. So in this episode, you're going to hear about the history behind that and where that comes from. It's completely fascinating uh, and it's just further proof that you are freaking amazing. Your brain is incredible and you are limitless potential. So enjoy, sit back, relax. I hope that this journey uh, that we've been on together has been a fulfilling one for you, that you've been enjoying these peaks inside of the portal. Here is your final peak. Let's dive in. When I first started learning hypnosis, I was so because I thought it was going to be this complicated secret that I was going to learn or uncover. And I had realized that hypnosis had become this mystical thing in my life where I had experienced a stage hypnosis show in high school when I was younger. And then had uh, experienced seeing it like in the TV shows and in movies and in media and had a certain projection or certain assumption of what, what it was. And I was making it out to be way harder than it actually is. And I was surprised by how simple it was. And especially while learning NLP, learning so much about language patterns, learning so much about our nervous system and how it takes in the world, 
It was the next logical step on top of everything that was already in the foundations of NLP. So quickly it became really accessible and I know that's what it's going to become for you if you have any of those uh, assumptions or projections like I did going into it. So before we get into exactly what hypnosis is, let's talk about what it is not to sort of demystify it for you uh, and so that we lay this foundation before we start talking about the history uh, and everything that you're going to learn here. So first and foremost, hypnosis is not sleep. A lot of times people will think that hypnosis is a sleeping state, but it is not. You are completely awake and uh, you are completely aware the whole time. You are in control. Hypnosis is also not a state of unconsciousness. Even though another name for your subconscious mind is your unconscious mind, you are not going into a state of unconsciousness. Fun fact, actually, is that the word, the term unconscious, actually came from an embedded suggestion from Milton H. Erickson, where instead of saying your subconscious, he would say your unconscious, implying that your unconscious mind is the one that is listening. Hypnosis is also not a state of being gullible, it's not a state of being weak-minded, and it's not being controlled by someone. All of these really come from the history of uh, stage hypnosis and the exposure that people have to stage hypnosis before they have exposure to personal development hypnosis, for example. And what a lot of people don't know is that in stage hypnosis, there's a lot of work that goes into making sure the right people are on the stage. And every step of the way, those people that end up on the stage who appear gullible or appear quote-unquote weak-minded or appear like they're being controlled by someone actually have every intention and are completely willing and consenting of being up there. Maybe you've seen certain uh, shows, whether in person or on YouTube or in movies, where uh, they'll have people up on the stage, but they often have to send some people back to the seats and say, I think you're going to enjoy this show from your seat way more than from up here. That's because the subconscious mind is highly moral. And if you don't want to be hypnotized for a group show, for humor, for comedy, it won't work. It won't listen to someone else's commands. It won't listen to the uh, stage hypnotist commands because it's highly moral and it'll see it out and it'll say no. So anytime that you are witnessing this stage hypnosis and you see someone not following someone's commands, it's because they're not consenting. But when you are seeing someone follow the instructions, they're consenting. And typically, with stage hypnosis shows, the people that end up being the ones that follow instruction and are highly suggestible ending up on stage are the people in a friend group that like to make everyone laugh, are the people that are hands and really like to perform and have that spotlight. And this isn't by mistake, right? The hypnotist knows exactly the type of person that they're looking for in that situation. And one of my favorite ways to look at hypnosis and one of the quotes that floats around a lot is that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. So knowing that you have to be a willing participant to go into trance, 
to listen to an induction, to go there, to let your subconscious mind take over and your conscious mind take a backseat. All of that is with your consent. So all hypnosis, even stage hypnosis, is self-hypnosis. You have to be willing. And therefore, hypnosis is not a loss of self-control. You're actually in control the entire time. And you'll see when we get into the details of how to get someone into trance, to take them through the process of hypnosis, it's built into the scripts, it's built into the process to show them that they're in control. We can't do it for them. We can't make them close their eyes. We can't make their conscious mind go wandering. All we can do is set them up and demystify it for them. So someone might be resistant because they actually have a lot of beliefs about, oh, that's for people who are gullible or that's for people who are weak-minded. I don't want to be controlled by someone or I don't want to lose uh, my ability to control my myself. And uh, what if I get on stage and I'm balk like a chicken, right? Uh, people having those beliefs about what hypnosis is can be a block to allowing them to experience it fully because they bring those beliefs into the hypnosis session and that can be problematic. So what we are going to learn with the Krasner method inside of mental wealth method is actually part of our process is just demystifying it and letting people know what hypnosis is and what it is not. So now let's take a look at what hypnosis is. Hypnosis is an awake state. Even though you're in a state of relaxation and you're feeling very peaceful and you are able to feel like you're kind of drifting off into another place, it still is an awake state. And that's why when you have someone come into your office, you want to make sure that when you're walking them through hypnosis that they're not falling asleep. You want to watch with your sensory acuity to make sure that they're staying awake because when we go into sleep, yes, there's some ways that you can retain those suggestions and it's really, really powerful when your subconscious mind is most like a sponge right before bed or right before you're falling asleep. That's when you can be downloading all this positive suggestions. But the second you drift off into actual sleep, it wouldn't work. So if we look at the different brainwave patterns of beta, alpha, theta, and delta, beta is an awake state, it's when you're thinking, it's when you're in your conscious mind. Alpha is when things are getting slower, uh, there's less activity happening, you're maybe daydreaming, drifting off, or like when you're in front of the TV trying to finish a movie, but you're really having a hard time and you like start to dream while you're watching the movie and you're sort of blinking and you're not, your head is getting heavy and you're nodding off, that's alpha, which can be uh, one state of hypnosis. That would be like a medium hypnosis. But as soon as you get into a deeper hypnosis, that's similar to the theta state that happens when you're sleeping, when you go into your REM state of sleep and there's rapid eye movement. So when you're working with someone um, on the subconscious level, this happens when I'm working with people with time techniques or hypnosis, you'll start to see their eyes twitching sometimes. It doesn't happen for everyone, but sometimes that rapid eye movement appears because they're going into that theta state. But the second someone moves into delta, which is that deep sleep, that rejuvenating, uh, 
a state where your skin cells grow, your hair grows, um, and you're really in that restful, deep place, hypnosis wouldn't work. So the same way that we tell people uh, to listen to a hypnosis track right before they go to bed, it's not so that they're listening to it while they're sleeping, it's so that they're listening in that alpha and then theta state before they even go into delta. Hypnosis is also a beautiful place where you get to practice and build your muscle of imagination. We use really, really rich sensory language in a hypnosis induction that allows someone to create that internal picture, that internal representation of a restful, relaxing place so that all of their senses get engaged and their imagination gets to wander. Because imagination really is the gateway to the subconscious mind and allows us to get in there. So hypnosis is a wonderful way to develop your imagination and it really is exercise for your mind. We call it a trance muscle and the more that you go into trance, the better and stronger that this muscle is going to get. So if you've never experienced hypnosis before and you decide that you uh, are ready to try it inside of this program, you might find that the first time is amazing and you feel a lot, or you might be like, okay, that was all right. But the more that you listen, no matter what your first experience is, the more that you listen, you can build that muscle up and look at it as exercise for your mind, exercise for your imagination. All the while, you're building an incredible rapport with your unconscious mind. And we talk a lot about becoming BFFs with your subconscious inside of this program and being able to have that relationship and that rapport of being able to pull up uh, certain memories, certain belief systems, being able to recall information quickly. And hypnosis is a skill that you can develop and is a muscle that you can build. And it's amazing because while you're building it, you get to go into this deep state of relaxation. And then finally, hypnosis is ultimately a powerful display of self-control, the ultimate display of self-control. So how people believe it's the loss of self-control, it's actually the opposite. Because through suggestion, whether your morals are accepting or not, if your morals are accepting through suggestion and if you want to, if you desire to go into trance, you're going to be able to do it. And by doing it, taking the suggestions, listening to the convincers that let you know that your eyes are just too heavy to open them even if you try, that is a brand new level of self-control, of being able to allow yourself to sit there to receive suggestions like that, where the same way that we practice meditation and build up our mindfulness muscle and we become okay with whatever thoughts are going through our mind, the intention of hypnosis is being okay with what it feels like to empty out our mind and receive from the outside. So having another voice there or having our internal voice or recording your own voice and listening it back on headphones. This is the ultimate display of self-control, being able to sit down and listen and build this muscle through short 15, 20 minute intervals of uh, just getting into trance and knowing that you experience trance all of the time.
trance is a regular part of your life whether you realize it or not. You're constantly going in and out of trance when you're going into the sleeping state and waking up in the morning. And you also are in trance every time you sit down in front of a screen because the refresh rate, the way that it blinks to load the image and load the picture and make everything crystal clear for you is moving at such a way that it automatically puts you into a state of trance, light trance. But that's why with smartphones now, people are pulled in. That's why with kids now, it's easy to hand a kid an iPad and say, watch this cartoon because they're going into a state of trance. So it happens with our screen time. It happens with TV. It's the second that you sit down and you're asking to turn your conscious mind off, right? You want to just stop thinking for a while. Well, when you do that, you turn that uh, critical faculty off and you sort of open the doors. You're just an open portal and you're downloading information. And that is also hypnosis. So what you're going to learn inside of this program is how to do it intentionally so that you can fill up that open portal with so much good and that you can empower other people to fill up that portal with so much good in their life too. So I'm really, really excited for you to have this foundation of knowing what hypnosis is and what hypnosis is not and demystifying a bit as we look at stage hypnosis. I invite you to go Google stage hypnosis and just see what I'm talking about of people consenting, the, the hypnotist on stage sending certain people who aren't responding back and just get that experience of looking at uh, they have to be willing to receive the suggestion and that if a hypnotist were ever to uh, suggest something that you reject morally, you wouldn't be able to follow through with it. I have my own experience of this where I've had people try to hypnotize me without me knowing it through conversational hypnosis and I had a piece of me that just was like nope like woke up uh, and I ended up developing like this response where I could I could see it happening and it was because my subconscious was highly moral and the um, conversational hypnosis that was happening was uh, not something that I wanted and because I didn't want it because I didn't desire it uh, my subconscious helped me out so know that when you're talking with your clients or you have your own examples that you're always going to be able to empower people knowing that they are in full control and we are having this tool in our hands so that we can use it for good and that we can use it to empower people and let them have one more tool in their toolkit. So next up, let's take a look at the history of hypnosis, which is so fun to go through and learn about. All right, next up, we're going to take a look at the history of hypnosis and have an overview of how far back this goes and what has happened along the way as it has evolved. So if you want to follow along, you can look at the page History of Hypnosis, the diagram in your workbook or manual, or you can simply just listen and know that the next time you see that, uh, you'll be able to make sense of that diagram a bit differently. And that this is an awesome uh, part of your audio learning to return to whenever you want to just 
collect more facts about hypnosis that you can share when you talk about it and get excited about it with potential clients, um, with social media, with family, friends, uh, as you now help demystify hypnosis and what it is in the world. So your diagram shows the start of the history of hypnosis uh, really in the 1700s when we look at Frank Anton Mesmer and the, uh, how he was coined for mesmerism, which is a word that you might have heard before, being mesmerized. But I actually want to take you back even further than that and let you know that over 2,000 years ago, there is evidence of uh, what they called sleep temples in Egypt and in the Middle East where a medicine man would gather people, people would come into this temple, they would sleep for different reasons, for different ailments, and uh, the medicine man would simply talk to them in a suggestive manner. And people would, quote unquote, what they thought at that time was sleep, they would drift into a hypnotic state, and uh, they would wake up feeling better. And the way that this was actually discovered was large clay tablets were found with uh, transcriptions of instructions for the medicine men who would, you know, have a certain route for a certain ailment, if they had stomach issues, digestive issues, um, if they had headaches or something like that. The, the prescription, quote-unquote prescription, would be a certain route or um, ingredient to help them feel better. But then it would also say, with the right amount of suggestion, showing that the power of suggestion goes back 2,000 years ago. So not only would people come to these sleep temples where they would basically be laying down, listening to conversational hypnosis patterns and uh, being opened up to suggestions on a subconscious level, when it came time for actual prescriptions, it would always be a specific plant or ingredient or root paired with suggestion, which I just think is so powerful because it shows how far back this goes for the power of suggestion to be something that's deeply rooted in us uh, as people. And it shows up now, present day, when you have, you know, two test groups that break off and one group has a, a certain, you know, they're trying a new medicine and the other group has a placebo. And that's what the placebo effect is all about. Just the power of thinking that they're taking a medicine that's making their problem go away makes it go away. So this was happening long before what's showing up on your diagram all the way back. And even in Europe, there was something called the Royal Touch, where they started to incorporate hands-on healing, uh, which also had to do with the power of suggestion and while laying your hands on someone, suggesting that they were getting better and better and better. But if we look at uh, the start of it all on your diagram, we see Frank Anton Mesmer. And he was really uh, interested in magnet healing. And he was deeply into practicing working with magnets and something called lodestones, 
where he would be able to go work with people and move around their energy with these magnets and make them feel better. And while he was working with these magnets, he would also use the power of suggestion and get them into these certain states, which became known as uh, mesmerized. So if you've heard the word, oh, I was mesmerized, this actually comes from Frank Mesmer and his process of mesmerism. So one day when he was doing a house call and he was going to work with someone, uh, he actually went to grab his magnets and realized that he forgot them. But he was so embarrassed that he uh, just waved his hands and pretended like everything was okay, even though he didn't have his lodestones, he didn't have his magnets. And he was shocked to find that it still worked. He was able to help this person feel better through the power of suggestion and just waving his hands. And he was so surprised and he saw that it wasn't in the stones at all, it was in his hands. And in the 1700s, he believed that through working through with those magnets for so long, he must have had enough of that magnetic energy build up in his hands that it made him able to, to work this way. He wasn't thinking that it was just the power of suggestion alone. He was definitely still thinking that there was some tie to this magnetic energy that was in his hands. And uh, he really felt like there must be this invisible magnetic fluid running through my hands. And he ran with this and started to see a lot of people. He moved from Vienna to Paris and became one of the elite and had so many people who wanted to see him and work with him. And uh, he actually was so intrigued by his powerful magnetic hands uh, that he proposed to the Academy of Sciences that they should have a review board to study what he's doing. And they said, well, if you're gonna make a study, you have to claim something. You have to claim that you found something. So what would it be? And he wanted to say, we found the fifth element, which is this magnetic fluid that moves from the hands. And after a lot of careful consideration, it was actually Benjamin Franklin that called him a fraud. And back in this time, right there, before TMZ, before news, word traveled quickly, it was really, really big news that uh, Mesmer was called a fraud. And after all, he had seen all these people, everyone had been healed by him. As soon as he was called a fraud and they said, there is no such thing as magnetic fluid coming from your hands, the patients who had been healed by him redeveloped their symptoms. The patients who had been healed by him redeveloped their symptoms. And this isn't the only time that a story of this nature comes up in this history timeline. So here we are seeing that it wasn't the magnetic fluid, it really was the power of suggestion for both Mesmer and his clients, his patients. And as soon as that was taken away, as soon as the credibility was taken away, they doubted everything and were able to uh, redevelop and go back into the state that they were in before they were, they were healed by Mesmer. Now, he kind of lived out the rest of his life feeling ashamed, moved back to Vienna, and uh, 
other people started to pick up his work and talk about like the act of um, mesmerizing someone and this was like the very early version of hypnosis stage shows where there would be like mesmerism shows where people would be put into these states and have needles like put through their arm and do certain acts that would otherwise be impossible for the conscious mind um, and uh, it was all coined by him and his work even though uh, he went back to Vienna and was living this shame and fraud filled rest of his life uh, tucked away even though all the work that he had done was starting to have new evolutions because really in that time they didn't have another word they didn't have a word like hypnosis to describe what was happening it was still mystical and still misunderstood and people knew that uh, it could produce powerful results but it was still hard to grasp onto but then in the 1800s uh, a few more things started to develop and there used there started to be some some more understanding around what was happening and this man named uh, Pusigur, which I'm not quite sure if I'm saying that correctly, uh, he coined the term somnambulist, which implied that this trance that people are going into when they're being mesmerized is a muscle. And if you're a somnambulist, it's a muscle that you, are, you have developed very well and you can easily go into trance. Uh, you are a somnambulist if you can drop into that trance state very easily so really that was the foundation of just starting to put more of a name to what was happening and then in 1838 this man named Ellison came along and he adopted mesmerism for the medical field so more and more people were starting to see that that was a powerful state for people to get into and they were starting to see what else it could do so as he started to see and experiment with how that could help out the medical field and people who were having physical symptoms, um, how they could be helped, uh, more support was starting to show up around this idea of being able to work with people when they're in this trance-like state. And then James Braid, who is a very important name for you to know for one of your quizzes, uh, he lived from 1795 to 1860. So he was technically around when Mesmer was starting to uh, really develop this magnetic hand healing that he had going on. And then he was watching as Ellison was adopting Mesmerism for the field, but he really was a skeptic. He uh, was thinking that like there's got to be some fake thing happening here. And he got a ticket to a Mesmerism show got in the front row because he was determined that he was going to see what was going on. He was going to be able to uh, expose it for being a fraud and being fake and like there's no way that this is real. And he was so surprised that when he sat front row in the show, he couldn't see anything happening. He couldn't see any sort of uh, fraud or fake or tricks going on before his eyes and he started to become a bit more curious he started to become a believer he's like okay something is going on here but he realized that it had nothing to do with the magnets it had nothing to do with the other elements that people thought 
were going on before or this special touch of the hand, he was really able to see that the thing that was going on was the power of suggestion. And he was the first one to name it that. And James Braid actually invented the word hypnosis. And hypnosis is Greek for nervous sleep. And he later tried to change it because he realized it's not a sleep state, but the name that he tried to change it to didn't stick and hypnosis was already taking off. And right around that time when James Braid was making this discovery and claiming that the suggestion was the phenomenon, another man named Esdale, who was also a doctor, uh, he was really interested in mesmerism and he started to use mesmerism to get people into a catatonic state uh, before amputation, before surgeries. And as he was a field doctor working on the ground with people who had been shot in the arm or shot in the leg, uh, they didn't really have the technology to be able to like, go in and, and just take that bullet out. The more traditional route would just be to do an amputation. And when he started working with people at that time, the mortality rate on the surgery table was 80%. 80% of people who came to his table died. And that was due to the infection being so bad, the pain being so horrific. This is before any sort of numbing agents or being able to go to sleep uh, while you're uh, having a surgical operation. Uh, so the infection, the pain, or the, the sheer fear of the surgery was what was killing people. They'd have heart attacks on the table before it would even happen because it was just so gruesome. But what he realized, being inspired by mesmerism, watching Elliston start to adopt uh, certain elements from it from the medical field, knowing that James Braid was a doctor too, and that there was this growing understanding around how this could be used to help people um, in the medical field, he started to use this process where he would get people into a catatonic state. And it would take him 45 minutes to an hour sometimes, but he would just have them lay down. And he'd have them look up at the ceiling and he would just start to wave his hands in a circle over their head. And sometimes it would take an hour, sometimes two, and the most, the longest it ever took was four hours. But he would get people into a catatonic state and then he would perform the surgery. And he dropped that mortality rate from 80% down to 10%. He reduced it by 70% as soon as he introduced the use of what we now call hypnosis. And uh, this was really, really powerful example of how it can help so many people in different circumstances within the medical field. And then from 1865 to 1888, we start to look at the first school of hypnosis starting to be developed where word is really catching on now. People are coming together. We have uh, Leibold and Bernheim uh, were in Paris and uh, were working on being able to help medical doctors, inviting medical doctors to come to this school of hypnosis so that they can learn a new tool to have in their toolkit uh, to help people through um, hysteria, which is also known as shell shock or now PTSD during this time, and empowering people to have another thing that allows them to do more with their clients, help their clients deeper, 
um, in ways that hadn't been developed yet. So it really wasn't until the 1860s when the first school was developed. When, when you think about that, that's still very, very recent. And actually, one of their students was William Freud. And we all know who Freud is, right? Being able to look at how he developed talk therapy and all of his different theories in the field of psychology. It's fascinating to know that he was actually a student of hypnosis. Uh, he was a doctor at the time. He hadn't developed psychology yet, um, but he wanted to come to uh, this Nancy School of Hypnosis so that he could have another tool while he was working with his patients. He didn't use hypnosis for very long because there's a few different stories as to why that is. One of them being that he was addicted to cocaine because um, they'd use cocaine leaves to help um, teeth, fake teeth stay in back then. And eventually his teeth were rotting and uh, he had such a bad like lisp um, and was not able to articulate words and his breath was so bad that he couldn't practice hypnosis is one of the stories. Um, but he credited the beginnings of his development of talk therapy actually to his time learning hypnosis and learning more about the subconscious mind. And as you can see at the top of your diagram, uh, Freud really splits off, right? The field of psychology took a split and went in two different directions and he was on, he was on one side but he really got his beginnings into thinking about the mind and thinking about um, the mental state of someone, not just the physical state of being a physical uh, medical doctor back at the Nancy School of Hypnosis. And then another person who's very important on this list is right around 1890, uh, William James. He really theorized what we now know to be time techniques. And he was the one who said that uh, the subconscious mind is storing time and, and memories chronologically. So even though it wasn't developed into scripts for almost 100 years, he theorized what our foundation for understanding time techniques is now today. And then after this point is when that split in the field really happened, where one side was really focused on talk therapy and the other side was really focused on behavioralism where uh, they said, you you know, everyone is just like uh, stimulus and response, stimulus and response. There's no like real complicated thought going on inside of there where the other side of uh, psychology and talk therapy would argue that like, no, like people are very, very complex beings. And you see on the side of behaviorism, we have Ivan Pavlov who was doing all the studies about anchoring and working with the dogs in 1904, right? And understanding that even that was like the stimulus and response effect. And uh, they were very, very deep in their beliefs about like, this is how it is. And then on the other side with Freud, they were really, really uh, adamant about how, no, this is like people are complex beings and they have a lot of different layers going on and it's connected to their parents and it's connected to their subconscious and uh, all of these different things are, are, are playing a part. And the field of psychology, both sides wanted to do a lot of good, but they started to uh, argue and disagree. And really develop uh, 
more harm than good. And with this split in the field happening, uh, and the talk therapy looking at all the different ways that people uh, have different conditions or disorders, um, they really became focused on finding what was wrong in people and finding what could be fixed or uh, finding how they could diagnose someone in order to help them instead of having a different sort of angle or different emphasis. And this is where that book, the DSM-5, was created, which if you ask any uh, psychology major or psychiatrist or psychologist, like that book is a huge, huge collection of all the things that could possibly be wrong with you. And anyone who's flipping through it can see themselves in all of it. If you want to read that book, you can find a way. It's been quoted by um, different uh, therapists and such like if you want to feel crazy just read that book like you'll be able to diagnose yourself with a lot of different things and this is what happens with like going on WebMD right uh, with certain language being like what's wrong with you you can find so many different things where you see yourself in it and you can fit a certain category and when you go to a doctor and they are able to go through the DSM-5 and they're able to find something and put a name on it and tell you like this is who you are that's the same level of the power of suggestion that used to happen back 2,000 years ago with the root and the right amount of suggestion from the medicine men. It's the same thing. It's having the power of suggestion come through, whether it be positive or negative. People take that on as an identity and as a truth and as the, the fact and like the raw, hard uh, facts of it right? And they believe in that so strongly that their life develops around that. So whether that is for a healing or it's for a disorder, and then the disorder becomes their identity. I can go on and on about my own story with this of having an experience of uh, going through a really, really traumatic season of loss uh, in my life, feeling situational, what I would now call situational depression, ending up in the system, being put on medication for my situational depression, developing other symptoms from the experience of being put on a brand new medication, and then having new symptoms that can be found in the DSM-5, and then having new labels put on me, and so on and so on. And every time a new label is given to me, just being like, yep, that's my identity, accepting it as the truth instead of questioning it because the power of suggestion is so strong. And if you're talking to someone, you're working with someone through the lens of this is what's wrong with you versus the lens of this is all that could be right with you and this is all that your future holds, that's a completely different energy. So even though everyone was trying to do a lot of good in the world, it got complicated and it got a bit messy. And as you see the split with the two sides, hypnosis really stayed consistent and is why it runs up through the middle. Is that all along, people using hypnosis really wanted to empower people and help people. And it took a long time before it turned over and to help someone's mindset and to help like for personal development. That's still like pretty new. Um, but in the medical field, they always wanted to be able to help heal someone and help someone overcome what they were going through. And 
have uh, the future be the focus. So as we get closer and closer to the 1900s, uh, we look at Sidetus, who in 1898 made the important distinction within the field that if someone is out of trance, you want to make suggestions that are indirect and permissive so that you are able to make it more subtle. And then when you're working with someone who is in trance, that's when you would want them to be more direct and authoritarian, which we'll get into when we look at the Krasner method. But as you can see through this whole process, it's really just one piece at a time, uh, slowly building, adding on to the knowledge that came before. And then we jump all the way to 1933 and look at our next person, uh, Clark Hall, who was the first person to really understand and identify that the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between real and imagined. As he was doing this college study with students who were just looking for an extra buck, he would pay them a low price to come on their lunch breaks and hook up to this machine that was a lot like a biofeedback machine that was able to uh, check their skin response with receptors. And by looking at that skin response receptors, they were able to study uh, people who were in and out of trance, doing different activities, and seeing um, if the receptors would fire off for imagined activities as well. And what he found uh, through that process was when he asked these college students, while hooked up to the skin receptor, when he asked these college students to have a bowl of fruit in front of them and slowly pick one piece of fruit at a time and set it on a table, counting it, looking at it while awake in a conscious state, they were able to do it and they were able to see what the machine was doing, similar to a biofeedback machine. They were able to see what it was doing and then Clark Hall would put them into hypnosis, put them into trance, and let them know that when you wake back up, you are going to see this bowl of fruit, and you are going to slowly count and look at each piece. But what he did before he woke them up is he actually removed the bowl of fruit so that when they woke up, he was giving them the, the command, the suggestion that they would be able to imagine that it was there, right? and count it one piece at a time. And by giving them that instruction, by bringing them back up to a wakeful state, he was shocked to find that without the bowl of fruit being in front of there, they reached out for the piece of fruit, looked at it one at a time, set it on the table, and the skin receptor machine was doing the exact same thing as it was when they were counting the real tangible fruit and holding it in their hands. So he was the first one to identify in 1933 that the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between real and imagined. And he also had a very important quote that says, anything that assumes trance causes trance. So again, the power of suggestion gets very meta here and doubles back on itself again and again and again. Isn't that so good? I see where I was at in the beginning when I said it's hard to cut it off. I could have just shared the whole history timeline with you. It was hard to stop it at 1933. 
but if you'd like to learn more and you are eager and excited and curious about hypnosis at this point, I invite you to jump into the Mental Wealth Method self-study portal. Today is the final day for the archival sale. This program is usually $997, but for today only, before we send it to the archives forever, lock it up in the vault, it's $333 or three payments of $111. And this is the most radically, deeply discounted I've ever done this, and it's because I just want to share it with people who have felt a pull towards it while they have been listening to these episodes, folks that have been in my world for the past few years that were curious about the mental health method when it was running. Um, now is the time to jump in. Full transparency, this was created from the certification program and it really is just a self-study now. Uh, there are so many other programs out there that are incredible for you if you are wanting to move forward as a coach and get certified in this work so that you can work with others professionally. But this container is designed and stripped down to be uh, all of the tools that you would learn in that certification program, but you're able to learn them at a deeply discounted rate because you're just going to be using them for yourself, which is transformational as well. So that is in the archival sale, and if that, that big uh, program doesn't feel right for you, there are other ways to tap into hypnosis. If you feel inspired by this episode, you can download the On Purpose album, which is usually $22, today at 7. Uh, you can download the subliminal workshop where you can learn how to make your own subliminals to support the hypnosis tracks that you listen to and work with your subconscious mind in a different way. Usually that's $175. Today it's $37. And last but not least, you can tap into the Spread the Wealth Bundle, which has different anchoring tools, hypnosis, and subliminals, all about developing your wealth consciousness. Usually $55, but today $18. Like I said, I have had the best time celebrating this closing of a chapter with you by sharing more uh, from that period. And it's been really special for me to kind of take that walk down memory lane of sinking into just how powerful this work is, right? Like, it's hard to wrap something up that you love a lot. But when you keep getting pings and inspiration to clear space to make room, um, you get to make some really important and hard and nourishing decisions about wh what is taking up a lot of energy in your life and having this open loop of, am I still a trainer? Am I not? Um, have been taking up a lot of space. So I feel really grateful to be bringing it to a close, to be reclaiming that space, to have just full freedom, full path ahead for what lies next, and um, I appreciate you for being a part of that journey. So I'm going to take a little break from these episodes since I've been pumping them out over the past couple of weeks for this mini-series, but when I come back, I'm looking forward to sharing more about what that next chunk of the road looks like. Uh, and if you are someone who is resonating with that feeling of knowing you need to clear space 
and need to listen to those intuitional pings around um, like something just feels not quite right. I gotta make room for what's next. I invite you to do so and I'm in the club right there with you. Leave me a note. Reach out to me on Instagram at it's Jenna Knapp. I'd love to hear from you because um, I think it can be an isolating feeling to think that we got to keep doing what we said we were going to do, even when it feels out of alignment. So um, I'm here to cheer you on and be a voice that tells you, like, it's okay to stop. It's okay to change direction. It's okay to say, wow, that was a really good season, and now I'm ready for the next season. (sighs) So until we are back on the podcast together again, take good care sink in, listen to some hypnosis, relax your nervous system, and enjoy the start of summer. I love you so much. Thank you for being here.